happy today to uh, present to you Reverend Timothy Haddon, personal friend, definitely one of our young rising academics, loves the word, just recently published a book on Exodus commentary. He is a home missionary, metropolitan missionary to the city of Portland, at least in that area. And he has been traveling for a number of years, preaching, teaching, and has established a reputation for loving the word, exploring the word, and being very articulate and accurate in the things that he has uh, presented. <clears throat> he graduated summa cum laude from Hope International University with a bachelor's degree and is pursuing other educational venues. So would you give a good hand and welcome Brother Tim Haddon today as he comes to present on the spirit. I have the unique task of getting everybody after they've eaten. And uh, so I'll see if I can invigorate you for the speakers to follow. What an incredible thing that we're doing here today. And uh, I've learned so much. And uh, I'm excited about uh, the things to follow. This is crucial in Pentecost, what we're doing. And uh, what I'm going to present today, I was very very thankful that I was given the opportunity to present this because it has been a running theme of my ministry, and uh, I hope that it will be today. I want to preface this by saying that I'm going to take you on the journey of what is written first, and by doing that, when we get to the final pages of the written version that you have in front of you, you'll notice that it is not a conclusion because there's never such thing as a conclusion with the operation of the Spirit of God. And so I'm going to take from that and I'm going to try to move that into with what time we have remaining and talk about the application of the Spirit within today's modernity. So let's get started. Introduction. Nothing is quite as important within the multifaceted disciplines of systematic theology than an accurate, scripturally informed pneumatology. While this certainly does not seek to diminish the other disciplines, the underlying premise of such a statement is built upon the simple fact that how one views the Spirit of God determines the role and function of God's Spirit within human agency in the cosmos. Because of this, one must first recognize that God's Spirit, the Spirit of God, demands a theology that encompasses both Old and New Testament study. That being said, any attempt to investigate a proper theology of the Spirit, especially as it relates to humanity and the world, must pay careful attention. And I want to solidify this statement because this is the approach that I'm taking. They must pay careful attention to the naturally unfolding narrative of the Scriptures. Thus, beginning with God's Ruach 
In the Old Testament, one can carefully move through the language, metaphors, and anthropomorphisms that give shape and substance to an accurate understanding of the Spirit of God, its role and function within humanity and the world. So establishing the unfolding narrative of Scripture, let's take a look at the Spirit of God in the Old Testament. In the words of Jesus Christ, while admonishing Nicodemus of the necessity to be born of the water and the Spirit, the question was posed, Art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? John 3.10 This question asked of one well-versed in what modernity calls the Old Testament reveals that a New Testament understanding of the Spirit is only properly informed through the foundation of the Old Testament Scriptures. In other words, as Walton observed, it becomes, quote, our exegetical duty to determine how the Israelites apprehended the phrase, Spirit of the Lord. Not only does it become our exegetical duty to determine how the Israelites apprehended the Spirit of God, but it also becomes our duty to apprehend how God sought to reveal His Spirit within the created world from the beginning of time. Spirit in creation. There is almost 400 times in the Old Testament that Ruach occurs, which is spirit. When contrasted to contemporary literature of the ancient Near East, it has, quote, a unique development of its lexical range of meaning. And across the broad spectrum of lexical meanings, Ruach is primarily translated as either wind, breath, or spirit. Of these three, wind seems to be the customary, quote, meaning of the Hebrew word when unaccompanied by any explanatory modifier. Two authors, Franklin Toos, discuss many times Ruach is used as a symbolism for, quote, God's agency in the natural world. Oftentimes, in the instances where Ruach as wind seems to be interchangeable with Ruach as the Spirit of God, the idea of power and invincibility is intended. When confronted by the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God of Genesis 1-2, one is immediately drawn to the dynamic moving that is associated with the Spirit's introduction. The invisible yet powerful hovering of the Spirit of God with the tohu wabohu, the lifeless and unproductive condition of the earth, lends toward the immediate potential of radical transformation. The connotations of the Spirit of God and its role in creation is captured vividly by Robert Hubbard in that if human eyes, ears were watching, hearing the events of Genesis 1-2, quote, they might see the effects of its silent movement across the waters. The Ruach soaring like an eagle, then in its wake flowed gentle ripples or majestic waves rolling across the deep. They, they might hear its rustle or rumble, audible like the wind. In some visible signs and audible sounds from an invisible source that attests the on-site presence of the mysterious Ruach 
in Genesis 1-2. This is further established following the disobedience of man in the garden. The first recorded interaction of God with fallen humanity, it was in the wind, ruach of the day that fallen humanity heard the sound translated as voice in many English translations of God moving in their direction. Once again, the movement of the invisible God is captured within the metaphoric idea of air in motion. The effect and sound of such movement evident to the senses of Adam and Eve. See also Psalm 29, 3-9, which tells us the voice of the Lord thundereth. And it tells us multiple things of the voice of the Lord. The involvement and interaction of God with humanity as captured by the idea of air in motion continues to be a primary element throughout the Old Testament. When God manifests Himself to Ezekiel, it is out of the whirlwind, the ruach coming out of the north, Ezekiel 1 and 4. Again, as captured in David's song of thanksgiving, 2 Samuel 22, God is said to be perceived as riding on a cherub upon the wings of the wind, the Ruach, verse 11. In each of these instances, wind is utilized as a theophanic element to describe the appearing of God to man and, as later discussion will reveal, played an important role in the new birth experience in the New Testament. What remains important to understand is that regardless of the theophanic element utilized throughout Scriptures to identify God's interaction with the cosmos, the motifs and various manifestations serve to symbolically assert, quote, the presence of Almighty God and whether stirring humans or nature, the Ruach always shows up decisively to intervene or affect change. The Spirit of God after the fall. The immediate consequence that would drive man from the garden, thus severing that unique relational bond, thrusts one into the immediacy of God's transcendence in the Old Testament. Psalms 8, 1, 97, 9, Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, and Isaiah 40, 22. All of those scriptures, to make this as a disclaiming note, talk about the transcendence of God, His apartness, in His height and His distance from humanity. As later discussed by Lister, 2015, Scripture, quote, articulates a Lord who is distinct from creation, existing solely in Himself eternally, absolute in nature, without non-intrinsic limitations, and fully infinite. The relationship of man with the Ruach Elohim as it had been prior to the fall was grossly disrupted. However, as Lister further observed, it was that very transcendence of God that would allow for the imminence of God. That is to say, the presence of God within the world God was also separate from. Rather than abandon man to a fallen world with a bleak future void of God's involvement, an eternally omnipresent God that transcended a fallen creation would enter human history to be perpetually manifested in order to, quote, disclose himself 
to humanity progressively, just as Dr. Wilson talked about the progressive involvement of God's revelation. God would disclose Himself to humanity progressively over time in a logical and comprehensible way. Dr. Wilson further establishes this self-disclosure of God throughout the narrative of Scripture by observing, quote, There has never been a time when God, in His most basic nature, was not proceeding, self-revealing, disclosing, or manifesting Himself. Furthermore, quote, when God's presence is made visible, it means that there has been a human encounter with the transcendent God. Why is this important? It envisions a time beginning in the Garden of Eden where the ideal of man in paradise is seen in perfect alignment, both functionally and relationally with God. It reveals that God always intended to be relationally near to humankind and as Lister eloquently states, quote, for this reason, the divine human experience of Adam in the garden provides a paradigm for what will be the fuller experience of the eschatological presence of God in the new heaven and the new earth. However, what Lister fails to observe is that while the relational experience of Adam with God in the garden points toward a future eschatological last day reality, it also points toward the redemptive purpose of a restored presence in a fallen and a broken earth. The progressive and perpetual manifestations of God throughout the Old Testament reveal a God that is actively involved in affecting and influencing redemptive change within the earth by restoring His presence in the earth. As Charette states, quote, the very fact that the Spirit is active among the people of God indicates that the presence of God itself has been restored. God's presence is restored so that His presence might restore. God's Spirit and human agency. Following the events of the human fall in the Garden of Eden, there is Little in the first 11 chapters of Genesis that indicate a divine human interaction realized through theophanic manifestation or presence motifs. Instead, the divine human separation that resulted from disobedience of man in the garden is seen in the glaring transcendence of God who watches with anger and disdain as violence, rebellion, and wickedness permeated human imaginations. As one moves into the patriarchal period, Scripture begins to progressively, we're back to the progressive nature of God's self-disclosure, Scripture begins to progressively unfold a divine human interaction that would lead to the charismatic activity of God's Spirit upon human agency. The charismatic activity of God's Spirit, as pointed out by Stronstad, corresponded to, quote, five periods of Israel's political and religious development successively concentrated on founding fathers, judges, kings, prophets, and priests. In each instance that the Spirit of God moved upon human agency, in the Old Testament, the function was, as stated earlier, 
by Hubbard, quote, to intervene or affect change. Nowhere does Scripture indicate throughout the Old Testament that the Spirit of God indwelt human agency within a permanent salvific context. But rather, the Spirit, quote, came upon people to empower them to do some service for Him. Men such as the wise-hearted Bezalel and Aholiab are said to have been filled with the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God, in wisdom and in understanding and in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship, Exodus 31 and 3. In this instance, quote, the narrative symbiosis of heart and spirit suggests that spirit ought to be understood similarly. The emphasis here lie less upon the eruption of the Spirit than an enhancement of the Spirit. This can also be seen within the context of Mosaic leadership when the Spirit endued men with the enhanced qualities of charismatic leadership and wisdom further established by subsequent activity of ecstatic prophesying. Exodus 11, 25-26. Now, this brings to light another unique function as it pertained to the Spirit of God and human agency in the Old Testament. It served also to authenticate anointed leadership in Israel. As Charette observes, quote, the presence of God's Spirit authenticates Moses' leadership and more importantly equips him to execute his leadership responsibilities. Again, as expressed by Hamilton, quote, the Spirit's presence distinguishes a person from the rest of the nation, thereby qualifies him for his function as an advocate for God's kingdom. This authenticating aspect of God's empowering spirit in the Old Testament is is vividly seen through the period of the judges when God moved upon men such as Othniel, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson, and the corresponding verses and chapters to follow to essentially bring that out. When Saul was anointed king, 1 Samuel 10.1, a symbolic act that authorized and set apart an individual to perform a specific work or task, it was prophesied by Samuel that the Ruach of Yahweh would come, literally rush upon him, causing him to prophesy and to be changed into another man. Verse 6, this is not, as Hamilton observes a, quote, conversion experience, but rather the Spirit's empowering leaders who will deliver the nation. In much of the same verbiage, the experience of being anointed would also cause the Spirit to simultaneously depart from Saul and rush onto David, 1 Samuel 16, 13, and 14. Further evidence of this is found in the prayer of Psalm 51 and 11, where Perhaps recalling the departure of God's Spirit from Saul, David cries out, quote, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Even the prophets, often depicted as being influenced, moved, and motivated by the Ruach Elohim, were merely men empowered, equipped, and enabled by God to intervene in human events and history and effect change. Second Peter 1, 20 and 21. Cross-reference that with Micah 3, 8, Nehemiah 9, 30. 
Though none of these individuals experienced an eschatological redemption marked by a spiritual restoration, a glimmer of future events and divine purpose permeated every charismatic activity of God's Spirit in the Old Testament. The foreshadowing of divine dwelling. Reiterating the dramatic deliverance from Egypt, Isaiah declares, quote, Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses? 6311b, 12a, English Standard Version. Isaiah, while making reference to the physical location of God's Holy Spirit, realized first in the tabernacle, the Mishkan, later in the temple, brings to light a synthesis within Scriptures that reveals, as Lister points out, quote, the presence of God at center stage of its redemptive story. This cohesion of Scripture presents a certain thematic cadence where, quote, it begins with a creation story of humanity, continues with their exile from this place of God's presence because of disobedience, ends with a nation in exile as a result of disobedience, yet called back to the province of Judah to engage in the task of temple reconstruction, the supreme symbol of God's presence. The tabernacle, erected during the wilderness journeys of the nation of Israel, sought to address a fundamental dilemma of a transcendent, holy God dwelling among a finite fallen people. The answer to this dilemma was to carve out a space among men that was dedicated to holiness. As Jonathan Sachs writes, quote, Holiness represents those points in space and time where God becomes vivid, tangible, a felt presence. Holiness is a break in the self-sufficiency of the material world where infinity enters space and eternity enters time. In relation to time, it is Shabbat. In relation to space, it is the tabernacle. These in the Torah are the epicenters of the sacred. Just as God had to practice self-restraint to make space for the finite, so human beings have to practice self-restraint to make space for the infinite. The tabernacle and the temple was a space for the transcendence of God where it could be encountered by humanity. However, the sacred spaces of the Old Testament that allowed for the imminence of God merely pointed toward an eschatological future where God would not merely dwell among, but God would dwell within. For the first time since the Garden of Eden, the presence of God was restored in the earth. But as pointed out formerly by Charette, God's presence is restored so that His presence might restore. The stage following this unfolding narrative of the Spirit of God, the stage was being set for an eschatological redemption marked by the restoration of presence. Prophecy and presence. Though captivity would eventually claim, fracture, and divide the nation of Israel, a picture of a lost presence would ensue, Ezekiel 10. Quote, 
central to the prophetic hope was the promised return of God's presence. Though the prophets would focus extensively on the eschatological hopes of geographical and genealogical inheritance, the undercurrent of the prophecies envisioned a day where the rivers of Eden would flow once again. Genesis 2, 10-14, cross-referenced with Ezekiel 47, 1-12, Joel 3.18, and Zechariah 14 and 8. Again, referring to Isaiah 63, 11-12, just as the Holy Spirit played the essential role in Israel's deliverance, it also anticipated a day where the same Spirit would enact a redemptive plan to bring about a new creation. Isaiah 65, 17. Ezekiel would declare a coming day marked by the indwelling of the Ruach in which a new heart would be given in 36, 26 through 27, 39 and 29. Not only would a new heart be given, but life was to be restored. 37.14 cross-reference with Jeremiah's two, or Genesis 2.7. Jeremiah, similar to the new heart of Ezekiel 36.26, foretold of a new covenant where God would put His laws on the inward parts of man. 31.33. Both Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, quote, point to a day after the prophets, when God would no longer reside in the temple, but by His Spirit would dwell in His people, thus creating an eschatological last day community marked by restored presence. Isaiah envisions spiritual restoration and renewal like, quote, water upon Him that is thirsty and floods upon dry ground. Perhaps most significant are the prophecies of Joel that move past the sin of Israel expressed in the progress of the locust, Joel 1 and 4, and the eschatological day in which God would restore through the outpouring of His Spirit upon italicized all flesh, marked by prophetic utterance, 2, 28 and 29. The Spirit in the New Testament. With the opening words of Matthew, and I want to make this clarification, everything that I've done to this point, I have felt like in a, in a, in a, in a Pentecostal culture where we believe in the essentiality of the baptism of the Holy Ghost, evidenced by speaking in other tongues. And, and Reverend B.J. Wilmoth will follow later to talk about the nature of tongues. I felt it very crucial that to establish a proper context of how the Spirit of God would penetrate the New, New Testament church and the first century dynamic is that it follows a trend. Okay, Nicodemus understood not... Not a lot. He didn't comprehend what Jesus was saying to him when Jesus said, Marvel not that I say unto you, except a man be born again of the water and the Spirit. But motifal language, and we're going to get into this, was utilized 
to Nicodemus to try to connect him to a perception of how God had worked in the past. And I believe that Scripture interprets Scripture. I don't believe that we have to spend a lot of time trying to finagle different authors and different writers and different people to to validate the dynamics of the Spirit of God. I believe that from the beginning of Genesis 1-2, we are introduced to a divine unfolding narrative of the operation of God's Spirit within the created cosmos. And so with that in mind, let's look into the Spirit of the New Testament. With the opening words of Matthew, the redemptive presence of God enters into salvific history in the form of of Jesus Christ. That is to say, Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew 1.23. Furthermore, the Ruach as captured moving over the face of the earth in Genesis 1-2 would now be realized in the face of Jesus Christ. John 1, 1 1-5-14 cross-reference with 2 Corinthians 4 and 6. As stated by Lister, quote, the redemptive presence of God once mediated by fire, cloud, and smoke, now stands face to face with His people. Jesus would become the culmination of every messianic prophecy articulated by Isaiah upon whom the Ruach Penuma would permanently rest. Matthew 3.16, Mark 1.10, John 1.32. The work and purpose of Jesus Christ, Scripture calls Him the last Adam, would only be fully realized through the completed work envisioned by an eschatological redemption involving the restoration of presence made possible through His death, burial, and resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15.4, cross-reference with Colossians 2.10-13. You must be born again. When Nicodemus now... We're going back to Nicodemus. I introduced him at the beginning of the Old Testament, and now I introduce him again at the New. When Nicodemus expressed confusion over the commandment of Christ that, quote, you must be born of the water and of the Spirit, John 3, 1-7, the accompanying explanation invoked an Old Testament motif of the Spirit as ruach, in this case, Greek, pneuma. According to Jesus, the restoration of presence realized in being born again would be evidence much like the blowing of the wind, John 3 and 8. In other words, as initially expressed by Hubbard in relation to the Old Testament Ruach, quote, visible signs and audible sounds from an invisible source that attest the on-site presence of the mysterious Ruach. As Kostenberger states, Jesus seeks to move Nicodemus from a woodenly literal to a spiritual understanding of what it means to be born again slash from above. Although the Old Testament does not literally refer to God's Spirit giving birth to spirits, cross-reference with 663, it does hold out the vision that God who is spirit, 424, will put, quote, a new spirit in his people. 
Ezekiel 36.26, cross-reference with 27.5 and 14. While there is nothing to give evidence that the followers of Jesus understood or expected the means by which their eschatological redemption and the inauguration of the kingdom of God on earth would be realized, Isaiah 32, 12 through 20, 44, 1 through 4, 59, 20 through 21, Ezekiel 36, 22 through 32, 27, 11 through 14, 39, 29, and etc. The reiteration of Old Testament prophecies lend toward their anticipation of a spiritual event of restoration. Recreation and restoration. Having been told to tarry in Jerusalem and await the promise of the Father, after which Scripture tells us they would be endued with power from on high, Luke 24, 49, Acts 1, 8. The events of Pentecost once again draw one to the motif of God's Ruach as found in Genesis 1, 2. The on-site attestation of God's presence is likened to visible signs and audible sounds, in this case, wind and fire slash light, Acts 2, 2 through 3. In explaining the phenomenon of ecstatic behavior and supernatural utterance that followed the outpouring of the Spirit, Peter exclaims, quote, He, Jesus, has shed forth this which ye now see and hear, italics mine out of 2.33. Furthermore, Echoing the words of the prophet Joel 2, 28-29, the events of Pentecost realized the long-anticipated eschatological gift of God's indwelling Spirit, thus establishing the new birth paradigm that dictated entrance into the kingdom of God, John 3, 5. The event at Pentecost, and subsequent events documenting the redemptive restoration of the Holy Spirit, Acts 8, 14 through 17, 10, 44 through 46, and 19 and 6, would realize the prophetic promises of a new heart out of Ezekiel 11, 9, 36 and 26, restored life, John 10, 10, cross-reference with Ezekiel 37, 15 and Genesis 2, 7, it would also realize rivers of living water. John 7, 38-39, cross-reference with Isaiah 44, 3. And the rest of the refreshing, Isaiah 21, 28-12b, cross-reference with 1 Corinthians 14, 21-22. The charismatic activity of Pentecost and every instance thereafter would reiterate the idea of new creation as established by 2 Corinthians 5 and 7, bringing to bear the dynamic moving of the Ruach Elohim over the Tohu Wabohu, the lifeless and unproductive condition of the earth. As Stevenson writes, Pentecost is truly a Kairos event in which God decisively enters the historical process and introduces something new into it. Quote, As beings filled with the Spirit of God, observes Machia, we are harbingers of the new creation to come and the kingdom of God fulfilled. 
This chirological event first realized that Pentecost would become the benchmark of the apostles' doctrine that would impact and inform the future writings of New Testament epistles. Now, I've brought you to the culmination of the Spirit of God as it progressively was revealed through the Old Testament moving into the New. I think that it is safe to say that the authoritative model of the apostolic church or the church itself, the Bible makes it clear that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It makes it clear that there is not a myriad of different diverging bodies that can claim the authentication of being the bride or the church of Christ. The fundamental most authenticating aspect of the apostles' doctrine was that it was established upon the eschatological last day Kairos event of every Old Testament prophecy that declared the newness of the heart, the restored life, the waters that would flow again out of the rivers of Eden. Everything that we identify with and the fundamental premise of the apostolic church is that it is a pneumatological community. That means that if one is not born again of the water and of the Spirit, then they are not marked to be within the church of Jesus Christ. And so you have to understand the events at Pentecost, captured in Acts chapter 2, 1 through 4, they were marked by the outpouring of the Spirit that had been anticipated by the foretelling of the Old Testament prophets. They would catapult biblical narrative into a new dimension of realized last day promises. Here, the beginning locus of a global Pentecostal mission would be propagated. And Dr. Miles Young is going to talk about the missiology and the mission of the church. And I'm going to submit that missiology cannot be divorced from the global phenomenon that occurred in Acts chapter 2. It was beginning at Jerusalem, Luke 24, 47b, that men and women would enter into a community that was defined by the chirological event of spirit infilling. One author said it this way, and I'm going to reiterate this. The arrival of the Spirit at Pentecost signals that God is still present to act and redeem. As Pentecost and the rest of the New Testament depicts, it is through the Spirit that the message of salvation will continue to go throughout the earth. Acts 1 and 8. The day of Pentecost is a full-blown model. Dr. Wilson writes in an article declared the authoritative model of the church. The day of Pentecost is a full-blown model of the motive power of the New Testament church, revealing to one degree or another of all of its constituent elements. Primacy of place is given to a Pentecostal infilling of the Holy Spirit accompanied by speaking with other tongues. They are, quote, 
one mind and one accord. And all the gifts of the Spirit recorded in Scripture were in operation, including wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, working of miracles, prophecy, speaking in tongues, preaching, prophesying, teaching, exhorting, discerning of spirits, ministry, giving, ruling, showing mercy, and the five-fold ministry. In closing, when the Apostle Peter began to declare in Acts 2.38 that you must receive the Holy Ghost through the repentance, baptism in Jesus' name, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. These words of Peter anticipate the central features of a world Pentecostal soteriology. It will be dynamic, feature distinctive experiences, e.g. repentance and baptism, yet set within a broader context or process. It would include theological, the forgiveness of sins, and social intergenerational, quote, children, dimensions. It will be historical and social, the promises for the Jews and for the Gentiles and those far away. And it would involve human response, repentance to divine initiative, God's calling. And so in closing, I know that I was limited in time, but everything that we experience now is off the benchmark of the transformational power the Spirit of God that enables us in this era of modernity for us to utilize a dimension of the Spirit of God that the flesh itself cannot comprehend. And I don't know about you, but living in this time that we're living in, I would never want to forsake the teachings and the primacy to the Spirit of God as the fundamental identifier of what it is to be an apostolic Pentecostal. I don't care what denomination, I don't care what, what, what seminal influence anybody comes from. At the end of the day, if God utilized His Spirit over and over and over again as the intervening causative agency to affect change and radically transform not only the world, but human agency alone. I want to keep that propagated in this last day that we're living in. We need a mission that is directed by Spirit-filled individuals that are not afraid of the promises that were given to us through the Word of God. Everyone in this place that has the Holy Ghost is into an eschatological last day community. And this is the most powerful generation that has ever lived on the face of the earth. Thank you so much. Thank you, Reverend Hedden. We will now give you an opportunity to uh, direct questions concerning this right here on the front row. Thank you. And first of all, the, the group may think I'm trigger happy because I raised my hand a lot. 
as a practitioner, I feel that, first of all, I'm very grateful to be here. I'm building on each presentation. As a practitioner, I feel that certainly by being here, I'm cast in the role of interpreting tongues. Interpreting language that the dude on the street that I have to deal with, you know, to make it meaningful for them. So, in putting the presentation together, God was principle, thought, light, life, and it's the nature of God to outgo. And the question that the dude on the street would have is, what did we have? We didn't ask for this, the salvific role of God. It seems that God got himself into that salvific role because he must outgo. And in outgoing and becoming spirit, he manifests himself through matter, plant, animal, and man. When he came to man, you got ethos. And with ethos, I got will. And he's going to manifest himself in my will if I meet his conditions in terms of being holy, what we need for a Holy Spirit. So what I'm saying to you is that's the challenge that we have with this wheel and how God manifests now. He was more than just spirit in the Old Testament. Now he is Holy Spirit and being manifested day of Pentecost to everybody through the Holy Ghost. So, uh, so, so, so that's the background to my challenges how, you know, again, what do we have to do with all of this? What did man with an ethos, with the will, have to do with this manifestation of the Holy Ghost? It seems like it's really all about God and Satan who disturbed the principle of God who wants to manifest himself. And when he got to man, now he has an ethos and God is hindered and manifesting who he is, and we are caught in the middle of being holy with the challenge that Satan gives to us. Could you respond to that? What's your question? The question is, well, like I said, my, see, Ruah, my, my challenge is, is interpreting tongues. You're giving us languages and words and ideology that... We have to interpret this God who has given us an ethos. And so, my, uh, so, so that's my question, is what did we have to do with all of this? What did man have to do with all of this? It seems it's more about God and the conflict of a fallen angel.
if I, if I think I know what you're saying. I don't know if it's so much a question of, of what did we have to do with it. God created man in the image of God. From the very beginning, man was given and was meant to operate in a cooperative union with God to accomplish the propagation of life on earth. So man has a lot to do with it. You know, sometimes, sure, we could say, I wish it was as simple as God divinely orchestrating every redemptive purpose He wanted. But one of the great mysteries of redemption and from the beginning of creative process is that God wanted to create this cohesion between Him and His creation to accomplish dominion in this earth. And so when sin arrests the divine initiative of God, even going back, we know that God was not surprised. And one of the beauties, again, that I emphasize is the unfolding redemptive narrative of Scripture that even though God wasn't surprised, the plan, the proto-evangel of 315 of Genesis, the promised seed, everything is coming back to culminate the cooperation of God with man again to accomplish redemptive purpose on earth. The church is the marked manifestation of God in the earth. We have the distinct privilege of being temples not made with the hands of man. But we have this unique, amazing opportunity to enter into the cooperation. What a beautiful thing it is in the agency of redemption that a normal person with flaws and inhibitions and problems that comes off no matter what, the gutters, the gate, doesn't matter where it's at. And God's fundamental premise of the death, burial, and resurrection, the gospel, the propagation of it, was that we could enter in again to a collective work of cohesion with divine mandate. So I don't think it's, what am I doing here? It's, and I hope I'm answering this question, what am I doing here? It's, God gives us the Spirit so that we can take this beyond the planes of finite limitations. I would hate to go preach to a congregation and not have the undergirding of the Spirit. Can I tell you that not recently, and, and I wish we could talk about this all day long, but because of that Spirit birth, which we're then admonished to live and walk in the Spirit, that I can operate in a gift of discernment in a church congregation and not have to hit a wall trying to figure out what I need to do. But we've become vessels of spiritual thrust. Thank you. 
on the subject matter. Do we have a, do we have a question? On the material presented on the theology of the Spirit. If not, I will pose a question for the presenter. There is a concept I'm interested in if you have encountered this or how you would respond. The second cosmos. The first cosmos is, as you have described, the wind moving upon the face of the deep in Genesis 1 and 2. The moving of that wind created many things that are still in effect today. And at the completion of that, at the end of those seven days, God rested. And creation has simply continued on, but not continued to create. Is it the same wind that blows in Acts chapter 2 and, in effect, creates the second cosmos, which is an entire spiritual world that he created there, that has been created, and now simply continues to propagate on the face of the earth? I like that question. I guess the best way to describe that question or answer that question is to first fundamentally understand that God follows pervasive themes throughout the Bible. And so, yes, I do believe that the same Spirit, which is God, God is Spirit, He is a Spirit, the same Spirit that took and, 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 and I know that doctrinal dynamics and opinions and scholarly resources are divided as to was it disorder, was it, was it, was it you know, whatever the premises of Genesis 1 was. But the same spirit that enacted cosmic change that began to interact with a lifeless and unproductive earth I absolutely believe unequivocally that is the same exact spirit captured by mortal men. When you look at Luke's response, and Dr. Treese is here and he'll be able to help me clarify that if it needs to be, but when you look at, at, at the, the likening of, of Luke to the coming of the spirit, he said there, 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 there came a sound from heaven like as... A rushing mighty wind. The only way that I can describe what Luke's trying to do from a finite perspective is he's trying to realize that same creative agency of what's moving into that upper room. So, hey, all I heard was a sound that was like as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting and there appeared on them cloven tongues like as a fire. Again, you have the thematic portrayal of wind and light. That was at Genesis. It was at Sinai. It, it, it was pervasive throughout the whole process. The same spirit. And so when you get to Acts chapter 2, absolutely we are seeing a recreation, a cosmic change. Man was dead in their trespasses. What did God do? God called us out of what? Darkness. Into His marvelous light. What's the first thing God deals with in Genesis 1? Through the interaction of the spirit. He opens his mouth and articulates. we got to take care of darkness. And so Acts chapter 2, 
is the cosmic development that's happened in Genesis 1 where new life is being given to them that are dead in trespasses, called out of darkness into His marvelous light. And as Scripture later attests to, new creatures, old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. So yeah, absolutely. I saw several hands. Brother Cox, I saw you next. Thank you, Utterbo. Hello, Brother Haddon. On page number five, you were talking about God's Spirit manifesting, and you said that He would disclose Himself to humanity progressively over time in a logical and comprehensible way. Now, I know that most, if not all of us, hold that uh, once the view of oneness or one spirit from old all the way into new to today. But I've heard this terminology used in talking about the Spirit of God by those who hold a triune view of the Godhead to say that the reason why Israel had no concept of more than one was because God was progressive in His revelation. So my question to you is, and using this terminology when talking about how He progressively over time disclosed Himself, how would you uh, repudiate, I guess, or argue, defend this against a Trinitarian's viewpoint that tries to use that same uh, concept to explain why it became a, a disclosure of three instead of one. Well, first I would say by going by the beginning of the chapter and quoting Dr. Wilson, um, which says there's never been a time when God in His most basic nature was not proceeding, self-revealing, disclosing, manifesting Himself. In the last session, we did deal with the self-disclosure of God, the progressive nature of God, but I would say this again. The basic beginning, the locus of all this teaching that I presented is that you have to start from the beginning. Scripture is never going to reveal something that is not scriptural. Okay, so now we can take a fork in the road and allow human interpretation to become the progressive revelation. But man doesn't reveal God. God reveals himself. So I would say going back, we, we talked about it in the last session, the progressive involvement of God begins from the beginning. Scripture will always interpret Scripture. I think if you divorce the, mo the fundamental, if you divorce all those teachings that want to use the progressive nature of God from human interpretation, human thought alone that was established later in time, and you bring it back to the beginning, Scripture clearly progressively unfolds that the same spirit that fell in Acts chapter 2 was the same spirit that utilized and interacted with creation in Genesis chapter 1. Their problem is, is which one are you going to talk about? Which one was it? Well, God progressively reveals His oneness through it, and then we come to that spirit filling us. Thanks, Reverend Timothy, for your presentation. I consider this topic, uh, especially for the church age, to be the most important today. Um, there are things I think about and I struggle with uh, within me. Um, we know that the written word of God is the 
absolute truth that we have to walk with, the written word. And we know that we have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, as many of us as have believed and have been baptized. Now, there is such a thing called the active word of God, the rema, or the oppression of the Spirit of God in the church of God. Um, many a times, if God speaks to you today, sometimes he uses contemporary things you know, and he doesn't, he, you may not, what you hear may not be exactly in the words written in the Bible, especially like in the King James Version of the Bible. And now, if you are to speak out the word, the way you heard it, um, some, you, you will now need someone who, has, who knows the scripture and has a better understanding to be able to validate what you have said. Now, my point is, um, my question is, how do we maintain the active operation of the Spirit of God and get people or encourage people to, 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 to either receive or grow in the active manifestation of the Spirit of God without, going out, without things getting out of hand, but at the same time, not just sitting with the Logos or the written word and then eventually becoming a dead church. Um, so I think we need some help here to be able to, because we, we don't see many people as we would like, uh, myself inclusive, not manifesting the gifts of the Spirit, which is actually meant for edification, building the body, which means we cannot even be built up without the manifestation of the gifts. There are a lot of things we suffer without the manifestation of the gifts. And people want to be careful so that there is no strange fire. So how do we manage with these two extremes? Good question. And Paul dealt with it in Corinthians. He dealt with a church that got overly preoccupied with nothing but the charisma the gifts of grace. And because of that, everybody had a word. Everybody had a tongue. Everybody had a prophecy. In fact, contextually, one of the scriptures that we, we use where it says that the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet, contextually, is indicating that if there's more than one prophet in your midst, it's, it's contextually presenting the idea that we ought, to, we ought to prefer one another instead of everybody trying to be the first one to give the word. So the personal spirit of the personal prophet, okay, as a, as a young man, I remember very distinctly having the interpretation to tongues and always having to be sure that I was the one that gave it because I really thought at a young age that, you know, I was pretty close to being second or third in the hierarchy of the kingdom. Being a little facetious here. But the church is always going to have order. And Paul talked about the need for everything being done in order. But you are right. 
you can get so scared of the gifts of the Spirit, the operation of the Spirit, that you become nothing more than, and I hate to use this because there's nothing wrong with being a word-based church, but how word-based are we if we're not functioning in the gifts of the Spirit? Okay? So I believe there has to be a balance. But at the end of the day, I believe everything that's done in the Spirit has to be first established on the solid foundation of the Word of God. And to kind of close your question, because that's a long topic, I know a lot of men that are used succinctly in the gifts that were not grounded in the Word. And that's a recipe for disaster. So pray, study, submit to your local leadership. Man, an apostolic church that's operating in balance, alignment with the kingdom of God, you'll operate in the gifts of the Spirit. Okay, I'm trying to get all the questions that were wanting to be asked. I saw our pastor from Wisconsin had another question. I tried to get to all of those. Brother, could you bring the microphone? When looking at your presentation and the follow-up by um, a moderator, um, the theology of the Spirit, the theology of the Holy Spirit, I'll give you the question, I'll give you the basis. Are they different? No. All right. The, the, all right. Oh, hold on a second. I'll give you the basis of my thinking. You introduce the theology of the Spirit as wind, so forth, moving on the face of the water. The sovereign act of God. The theology of the Holy Spirit seems to be a conditional manifestation of God in the lives of people. Hold on, hold on a second. Last point on this is... Maybe the difference, sovereign manifestation and conditional manifestation, could be the difference between Calvinism and Pentecostalism. In other words, God will save whom he wants. This my sovereign will. I will give you. I will move as I want to versus a conditional manifestation. So again, it goes back to, is this talk on the theology of the spirit Genesis 1 and 1, and the theology of the Holy Spirit are the two the same. Hanging on that sovereign manifestation and conditional manifestation. The only way I know to, to answer that question is whether it's the Spirit of God or Holy Spirit. God's holy. The Bible says God is holy. Peter rearticulates re uh, an Old Testament premise, be ye holy for I am holy. What makes holiness possible? The Spirit of God. And going back to the fundamental premise of, of looking at the temple or the tabernacle, man's carving out a space that God is conducive for God. When we get the Holy Ghost, we, we, we continue to live our life in such a way that we continue to walk in the light as He is in the light. 
So I, I, I hope that answers the question. Okay, we're going to take one more question. Brother Aaron Mayo is going to present his question. Then we're going to take a break and reconvene. We're going to, after, <clears throat> physiologically, I think you understand, after you eat lunch, sometimes you need a break. So as soon as he is finished with his question and answer, we will be breaking until 3 p.m. Then we'll come back and reconvene with uh, Brother Wilma's session. So final question on this session. Pastor Haddon, on page 11, you quote John chapter 3, verse 8, and the word wind and spirit there is pneuma, like you noted. Why do you believe Jesus used pneuma instead of ruach? And what is the difference between pneuma and ruach, if there is a difference? Well, you move into the Greek-speaking culture that, especially text was written, you can't I know people have different opinions as to the Septuagint, but the context of this is, is the New Testament was written primarily in Greek. And so the use of pneuma, while the literature of the time doesn't necessarily state that the Greeks had within their culture a pneuma that identified with what we would identify, the Greeks themselves. But the Jews would have understood transitioning from Hebrew, moving into to another language. They would have understood the connotations, especially when you're talking to Nicodemus. If indeed Jesus talked to Nicodemus in Greek, I don't know. There's maybe some that would say he spoke to Nicodemus because Nicodemus he was a Hebrew. He was a man that was very learned and educated in, in, in Hebrew. So maybe he spoke that to him in, in, in his language, and it was recorded to us in, in Greek. But I don't believe that anything's lost in the transition from the Ruach, the Old Testament, especially with the motifal language that's being used again and again to describe God. And that's something that's very, very profound, is that when you do look at Nicodemus, that which is born of the Spirit. Hey, it's going to be like the wind. You can't see evidence of the wind. What's he doing? He's again appealing back to one of the lexical range of meanings that was predominant among the Hebrew culture. They would have articulated this thought. And so he says, hey, the wind, you can't, you can't see evidence. You can't see the wind itself, but you can sure see evidence of the wind's presence. Okay? You see trees moving. You see movement occurring. And you hear the sound of wind. And so he says, hey, guess what? So is everyone that is going to be born of the pneuma, the Spirit. What's he trying to say? Hey, you're not going to be able to see, visibly see the Spirit, but you're going to see an on-site attestation to the divine presence of a holy God moving into the person that's getting the Holy Ghost. What's the sound that you're going to hear? They're going to speak with another language. That's an on-site attestation to, hey, they're getting the Holy Ghost. They're speaking with a sound. That's evidence of the Spirit. The Spirit is moving us to go to the restroom. Yes, you are is. dismissed until 3 o'clock.